KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Thursday, March 25th. Travel is spiking in San Diego for spring break. We'll have more on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Two new cases of the Brazilian variant of the coronavirus have been found in San Diego. Infectious disease experts say the variant may be more resistant to vaccines, but they also say it's not clear if it's more of a severe illness or if it's more easily spread. One case was reported in a resident with no travel history and one in a non-resident who had been overseas. Neither was vaccinated and neither has been hospitalized. San Diego Gas and Electric says residential customers will receive a break on their utility bills in the coming months, thanks to the state's climate credit program. The credits are expected to reduce natural gas bills by an average of $17 per month. Electricity costs will come down on an average of $34 per month. The California Climate Credit is a state program requiring power companies that emit greenhouse gases to buy carbon pollution permits. The credit on customers' bills is their share of the payments that come back from that state program. A storm system will sweep through San Diego County today with heavy winds expected in the mountains and deserts. Skies should clear up by Friday night and then it should be getting a little warm over the weekend. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. San Diego County public health officials reported 257 new coronavirus infections on Wednesday and 11 additional deaths. Overall, case counts have been relatively low lately, but spring break is now upon us and travel trends are spiking. KPBS's Matt Hoffman reports. Even just looking from month to month, we are seeing an increase of passengers. Travel is up nationwide, and the trend is hitting the San Diego International Airport, too. This past Sunday, officials say they saw their busiest flying day since the pandemic was first declared more than a year ago. In March, there's several different spring breaks happening, so uh, traditionally a popular time to travel. San Diego International's traffic was down 95% last April compared to 2019, but they're making gains. Right now, it's down around 60% compared to this time two years ago. And so is the hotel industry. After averaging around 16,000 daily bookings countywide at the beginning of the year, numbers have steadily increased to now around 50,000 daily bookings. It's an improvement, but not comparable to pre-pandemic numbers during this time. While we're not seeing some huge spring break crowds at places like here at Mission Beach, a lot of our local kids are still yet to go on spring break. But local businesses in this area tell me they're starting to see an uptick in customers. We are seeing some uh, like tourists from 
Arizona, you know, like our typical tourists, but it's honestly dropped a lot significantly. Belmont Park is a staple in Mission Beach for tourists and locals. The park's public relations manager, Daniela Bauer, says spring break is typically their second busiest time of the year. In previous years, it would be packed. This year, I don't think it's going to be quite that much. They are expecting an increase over the next few weeks, and because we're now in the state's red reopening tier, amusement parks and baseball stadiums can reopen on April 1st. Belmont Park is doing just that, and preparations are underway to reopen all of the rides here. It's definitely uh, a huge deal for us. CDC health officials are still advising against traveling, warning of a potential surge in cases, especially if unvaccinated people are mixing. If they you know, make that decision to travel again, do it responsibly. And at this point in, we're a year in. Folks know the individual steps and actions that we can all take. Local officials say there are no quarantine restrictions for traveling county residents coming back. But Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says we're on a good trajectory and wants to stay there. In the next few weeks, we could potentially be seeing more restrictions relaxed. He's reminding those traveling of a statewide advisory. Encouraging Californians to avoid non-essential travel. Uh, more than 120 miles from someone's place of residence. Fletcher says that advisory also recommends those traveling out of state to quarantine for 10 days when they return. And that was KPBS's Matt Hoffman. One year ago, San Diego designated a handful of slow streets. They're streets where car travel was restricted to encourage walking and biking during the pandemic. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen took a look at what's left of the program. It's quiet and peaceful and it feels like safe. Like you can, if you make a mistake, it won't be like bad, like you won't get hit by a car or anything. Ten-year-old Emma Zakowski says she rides her bike down Diamond Street in Pacific Beach at least every other day. It's more like natural. You can just hear like the wind and the trees. And other places, it's like cars like rushing by you. It's like it feels like scary almost. Last April, when the first COVID-19 lockdown was in full swing, San Diego city leaders sought to open up streets for people to recreate safely. The city put up sandwich boards, noting the streets were closed to through traffic, but open for pedestrians and cyclists. But in recent months, the city has quietly removed all the slow streets except Diamond. When Katie Matchett, president of the nonprofit Beautiful PB, heard the city was considering removing the slow street here, she began organizing neighbors to support it. This is a place people come and they get to interact with their neighbors and they get to meet people and they get to have this sense of community. And that's important at all times, regardless of whether or not we're in the middle of a pandemic. The Slow Streets program has faced backlash from some residents and businesses because of disruptions to parking and traffic. City officials did not immediately respond to a request for comment. And that was KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. San Diego Unified School District Superintendent Cindy Martin was on Capitol Hill on Wednesday. She was getting grilled by U.S. senators during her confirmation hearing to become the next deputy secretary of education. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong has more. Much of the questioning during Martin's two-hour-long hearing centered around the pandemic's impact on school children. Responding to questions about whether she waited too long to reopen schools at San Diego Unified, she said she relied on local experts and local data. Every decision that we made was rooted in safety being our strategy as the science was ever-evolving. 
And as it evolved, we evolved in our implementation and our path forward. The tone and tenor of the questioning were largely divided across partisan lines. She received praise from Democrats for her achievements at California's second largest district, particularly for her work with marginalized students. Under her tenure, the district achieved the fastest reading growth in large urban districts nationwide and had the highest graduation rate of all big city districts in California last year. Republican senators were more skeptical, especially in regards to her lack of experience in higher education. Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana questioned her about student loan forgiveness and was frustrated by the lack of a clear answer. If confirmed, it's something I'd want to know more about and engage in the appropriate dialogues with the appropriate staff as it moves forward. That sounds a little bit like a rehearsed answer. <laughs> in fact, it sounds entirely like you were prepped for that. Um, I guess what I want is the unprepped answer. While Martin was being questioned on Capitol Hill, about a dozen parents and community leaders gathered in front of the district office to protest her nomination. In particular, they called her out for the disproportionate suspension and expulsion rates for black students. During the hearing, Martin did not address racial disparities in school discipline, but said she has seen success in addressing achievement gaps between black and white students in literacy and math skills. When I started in 2013, our eighth graders were achieving at average across the country, looking at the NAEP scores amongst the big city districts. And then in 2019, we were first in the nation and in reading and second in the nation in math. The senators have not yet set a date for Martin's confirmation vote. Meanwhile, she will finish the school year at San Diego Unified and area superintendent Lamont Jackson will then lead San Diego Unified on an interim basis while it searches for Martin's permanent replacement. And that was KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. A demand to stop hate against local members of the Asian American Pacific Islander community is now on its way to becoming policy. KPBS's John Carroll reports. We are here today to stand and speak with one voice. Chairman of San Diego County's Board of Supervisors, Nathan Fletcher, began a morning news conference with a clarion call for everyone to work together to stand against discrimination and the violence it breeds against members of the AAPI community. Kent Lee is on the board of the San Diego API Coalition. I have been appalled, and I think all of us have been appalled, at the incidents we've seen not just in this last week in Atlanta, but also over the course of the last several months, over the course of the pandemic. The murders in Atlanta, eight people, six of them Asian women, gunned down while at work. And there are so many more incidents across this country, especially over the past year. Here in San Diego County, from the day the state went into the COVID lockdown through the end of last year, 42 incidents of discrimination reported against members of the AAPI community, more than half of those verbal, nearly 10% resulting in physical violence. And of course, those are just the ones that were reported. Words have power. Words have power to uplift and words have power to hurt. Like everyone else at this morning's news conference outside the county administration building, Kieran Makapugai called on all San Diegans to step up, to not let racist comments pass without being challenged. And she voiced support for action that will come before the Board of Supervisors next month. Fletcher and Vice Chair Supervisor Nora Vargas are working with the AAPI community on the wording of a resolution and a new policy. Words that Makapugai says will turn into action. These actions will inform policy. These actions 
will inform programs, practices, laws to give all of our communities the care and the compassion that we have been asking for long before this pandemic. A crime against any community is a crime against all of us. It is unacceptable and it must stop now. Ellen Nash chairs San Diego's Human Relations Commission. She summed up her remarks saying, hate has no place in America's finest city. The resolution and proposal for changes in county policy will be taken up by the supervisors on April 6th. And that was KPBS's John Carroll. For Asian American women, racism and sexism are two things experienced at the same time. Reasons given for last week's shooting rampage in the Atlanta area underscored that reality. Atlanta law enforcement appeared to take the shooter's words as fact when he stated his motive was sex addiction and had nothing to do with race. But many people in the Asian American Pacific Islander community say racism and sexism have long been an interconnected history in this country. Kristen Sasaki, Ph.D., is an assistant professor of ethnic studies at UC San Diego, and she spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Here's that interview. Can you describe the ways in which Asian American women experience racism and sexism? Sure. So the recent Atlanta killings, I think, exemplify the intersection of racism and sexism that Asian American women deal with in this country on a daily basis. And I really don't think that you can disconnect race from sexism or racialized uh, violence from gender-based violence. And we see this narrative that is coming out of the shooting in Atlanta with the shooter telling the police that the spas he opened fired on represented, you know, this temptation he wanted to eliminate. And these were working class Asian American women, women with lives and loved ones. And Long's defense reduces these women to an embodiment of his sin. And this this conflation of massage parlors and sex workers without any nuance, I think, is, is something very specific to anti-Asian racism against Asian women. And have you personally experienced this? I mean, sadly, yes, I have. Uh, a lot of times in places, I think, where you least expect it, like while grocery shopping, someone will make a misogynistic comment while I'm, you know, picking out apples or something. So, Growing up as an Asian American woman, I mean, you know, this is our reality. We are invisibilized in so many different ways. We're views, viewed as a fetish, um, an exoticized, eroticized, sexualized object that on one hand is expected to be quiet and on the other is understood as, as you know, this dangerous temptation. Where does this racialized sexism or racialized misogyny against Asian American women stem from? That's a great question. You know, I think our country has had a long history of sexual violence against Asian women. And we see it as early as the 1875 uh, Page Act, which is a U.S. federal law that was directed at barring Asian women in general and Chinese women in particular from entering the United States under the assumption that they were sex workers or apt to become sex workers. So, you know, this is not something new at all. It's been going on for centuries. And you know, when you heard police in Georgia say the shooting wasn't about race, but about an alleged sex addiction the shooter said he had, what were your immediate thoughts? 
I mean, honestly, I thought they're wrong. And my second thought was, you know, I know our community is going to speak out about this. And so, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad we are and I'm glad we're having this conversation. What do you think of the way the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office responded to the Rampage shooting? Uh, the officer said the shooter had a bad day. Uh, the same officer's Facebook page revealed racist posts about the coronavirus. I mean, do you think he or, or even the way this has been investigated is one example of a larger problem in terms of getting needed attention to justice when it comes to violence against the AAPI community? Yes, I do. I think the Asian American community in general has been told that we don't really experience racism. And this type of violence against our community is oftentimes swept under the rug by political authorities. And, you know, although we've been voicing our concern for decades and centuries, even it's gotten little media coverage or or any political attention. And do you think that the the model minority myth feeds into that idea that the community does not experience racism? Definitely. I mean, even if you look at one of the first times it's used, you know, in 1965 by Daniel Moynihan, who was then Secretary of State, he uses the term model minority as he compares Asian Americans, you know, quote, success in this country to what he calls the failure of, of Black America. And I think that type of discourse continues to haunt and hurt our BIPOC communities today. And what do you think needs to be done to help people better understand how Asian American women in particular experience racism in this country? You know, um, oftentimes when we complain about anti-Asian racism and gender violence, our concerns are brushed away and minimized. And I really hope that starts to change. And what we need to do is understand the intersectionality of these types of systemic violence against BIPOC communities Um, and Asian American communities and and be in solidarity with each other. And for the past year, there's been a lot of media focus upon particular individual acts of violence against our communities with organizations like Stop AAPI Hate, um, reporting individual acts of violence against Asians and Asian Americans. And this has been a really useful tool. But I think what has also happened is that the ways that this is covered is as individualized acts of violence. And what we need to do is demonstrate that they are really symptomatic of systemic racism and violence against our communities. And and how has this history of racialized sexism harmed AAPI women in the U.S.? I mean, I think in general, you know, we are invisibilized. um, And right now it's impacting our mental health um, and and our ability to feel safe out, out in the world, out in the U.S., That was Kristen Sasaki, Ph.D., Assistant Professor of Ethnic Studies at UC San Diego. She was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Coming up, we'll have more on the current recall efforts against California Governor Gavin Newsom. Also, it's been a year since historic marches occurred across Mexico demanding women's rights, and a year since the pandemic hit and slowed the movement's momentum. You're not alone. Your fight is our fight. All of that next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, 
healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. A recall vote against Governor Gavin Newsom is likely heading to the ballot later this year. And a new poll gives us an idea about where the California electorate stands on the issue. A survey by Probolsky Research shows 53 percent of likely voters want to keep Newsom, compared to 35 percent who want to remove him. Here's the firm's president, Adam Probolsky. That's not really typically a rich environment for, you know, uh, for canceling someone or for getting them unelected. The poll shows Newsom still enjoys broad support among Democrats and black voters, but Newsom's approval is slipping among Latinx who have suffered disproportionately during the pandemic. Newsom also had higher approval ratings a year ago in the Central Valley. Now a slim majority of voters say they support the recall. Meanwhile, Newsom's supporters are saying the recall campaign is driven by fringe groups who use anti-Semitic messaging. KQED's politics editor Scott Schaefer reports. Members of the legislature's Jewish caucus say leaders of the campaign to recall Newsom have ties to groups like QAnon and the anti-government far-right organization The Three Percenters. On a virtual press conference Tuesday, San Francisco State Senator Scott Weiner accused recall organizers of hijacking the Holocaust by using images of Adolf Hitler to condemn Governor Newsom's orders around the pandemic. These are people who are extremists. Uh, these are people who are peddling conspiracy theories, and these are people who are no friends to the Jewish community. In fact, a few of the lead recall organizers have in the past posted social media images and comments that many see as racist or anti-Semitic. The recall campaign spokesman dismissed the allegations by the Jewish caucus as a hateful political stunt and said the campaign denounces all forms of hate and bigotry. And that was KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer. A year ago, women across Mexico led historic marches and a national strike fighting for safety and justice. But just days later, the pandemic hit, slowing the momentum of protest for women's rights. But it hasn't stopped the onslaught of violence against women. From the Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Sonora, KJZZ's Kendall Blust brings us part one of a two-part series. More than a thousand women marched through the streets here in the Sonoran capital Hermosillo on March 8th, joining tens of thousands across the country on International Women's Day, calling for an end to the crisis of killings and disappearances of women and girls in Mexico. Last year alone, nearly 3,800 were murdered in Mexico, more than 10 a day on average. So despite the ongoing pandemic, women of all ages came out with friends, sisters, and daughters demanding attention for the violence that has touched nearly every woman's life. Cecilia Dorazo says she's here for her friend Ambar, a 20-year-old architecture student who was raped, strangled, and stabbed more than 60 times in Hermosillo in May 2019. She marched with her four-year-old daughter Regina, who held a sign scrawled in purple marker with her shaky toddler script, my mom is teaching me to fight for my rights. 
Nearby doctors Rene Rivera and Maria Soto hold up signs honoring femicide victim Mariana Sanchez, who was hanged outside the medical clinic where she worked in southern Mexico. Gathering the crowd, a woman reads a statement from Sonora's feminist collectives. Today, she says they didn't come out to celebrate, but to demand their rights, honor those who are gone, and show the world that they're still here. It's never been easy for women to speak out against violence in Mexico, says Andrea Sanchez, a member of a local feminist group, but it's gotten even harder during the pandemic. They faced sickness and the deaths of loved ones from the coronavirus. But just as violence against women hasn't let up during the global pandemic, she says, neither can their fight. The number of women killed in 2020 was nearly the same as in 2019 when Mexico reported a record 3,837 murdered women. But other figures from last year show significant increases in gender violence. Definitivamente las desapariciones. A data analyst for a citizen watchdog group, Crimilde Bernal, points to a growing number of women and girls going missing across the country. Nearly 2,000 disappeared last year. Most have never been found. Last March, women made 26,000 911 calls reporting domestic violence, sexual abuse, harassment, and other gender-based crimes, the highest number ever reported in Mexico. And Bernal says Mexican leaders are failing victims. Impunity is high, women who report abuse are often re-victimized, and the president has repeatedly minimized the issue. That's a problem Wendy Breseño says she recognizes. Breseño, head of the Congressional Gender Equality Commission, says 7 in 10 Mexican women over the age of 15 report having experienced at least one incident of violence because of their gender. Addressing that scale of violence, she says, will require much greater commitment from all levels of government, including by her own Morena Party, led by President Andrés Manuel López Obrador. But she says demonstrations across the country this month show that the pandemic hasn't stopped the movement's efforts to make Mexico confront the grisly reality of gender violence. Roaring chants and songs at the Hermosillo March at times fell silent. Hundreds of women stood shoulder to shoulder, listening to the sobs of the mother and sisters of a 13-year-old girl murdered years before. Around them, women embraced, raised their fists, and erupted in shouts of support. You're not alone. Your fight is our fight. Cecilia Durazo, holding her daughter's hand, says those who've lost someone know that coming out in solidarity, shouting and resisting, is the only way to create change for women in Mexico. I'm Kendall Blust in Hermosillo. And that was KJZZ's Kendall Blust reporting from Hermosillo.
And for our art segment today, there's been a lot of discussion in the past few weeks and on this podcast about anti-Asian racism in this country. Now, a timely new podcast brings us some historical context. It tells the story of a massacre in LA's Chinatown in 1871. The story is told through the eyes of a young woman who arrives in California as a refugee. It's called Blood on Gold Mountain. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with two of the podcast creators, Hao Huang, a professor of music and humanities at Scripps College and the story's narrator, and his son, Mika, the show's artistic director. Hao, what was the historical incident that inspired this podcast, Blood on Gold Mountain, and how did you first hear about it? Well, I, I love that question because I was here for at least 15 years before I even heard about the 1871 L.A. Chinatown Massacre. This focuses not only on that event when it was a mob of about 500 people, which comprised about 10% of the entire population of L.A. at that time, who dragged out and lynched about 20 Chinese. And that was a huge proportion of the Chinese in L.A. at the time. And in Chinatown, there were only about 100 people. So that was 20% of the population of Chinatown was killed in two hours. I never heard of this massacre on the East Coast. My children were never taught about it in their L.A. district schools, uh, even through, through 12 years, primary and secondary. So I wanted to know why, and um, this podcast, in certain ways, is one of a series of, of things we've done to honor those dead by remembering their past. And Micah, how did you tackle crafting the narrative for this? What was important for you in terms of how this story was told? For me, even though I have so much reverence for the tragedy of the deaths that are involved in the massacre— I felt like the lives of the characters were at least as important from the point of view of somebody looking at it over this long span of history. I really wanted to bring to life really vibrant and, to my mind, realistic Chinese-American characters whose personalities and the experiences that they talk about in the story are based on a combination of his historical information that I've gathered through research, but also family stories from people who I'm very close to having to do with the refugee experience, having to do with being an immigrant in the United States, and also, unfortunately, having to do with racist violence and hostility here. You see, Chinese in this country live outside the law. We can't speak to a judge unless it's to accuse another Chinaman, Indian or Mexican, of a crime. That means any Guam can bring down the law on us at any time. And the claim jumpers would almost certainly enlist the sheriff's help to run us out of town. I got to listen to the first podcast. I like that it's not strictly about the massacre, that you bring us in first through the characters and developing this whole sense of what life was like for those people at that time. The story of the massacre is a very, very fast-moving, violent story, and it's it, it's all, I think Dad called it a blood and guts kind of kind of sequence. It's it's very horrific, but the sequence of events leading up to the massacre, which has a lot to do with the characters and their decisions and their actions, 
there's a love intrigue. There is like a conflict between these two gangs who are struggling for control over Chinatown. And this woman, Yat Ho, is just right in the middle of it all. It's like she's thrown into this crazy situation without even knowing ahead of time. And so I really felt that the more that we could give background and the more that we could give a sense of what was going on with her and with her brother and with some of these other characters who we're going to meet, the more the story would feel real and feel engaging. I understand this all started in 2019, this project. So how did current events at that time influence the creation of the podcast? You know, this was at the time when a lot of consciousness about racism was raised by Black Lives Matter. But also, it would just felt like the right time to find out the local history. Why, why was it neglected? I think this is something that's really a pivotal to to understanding race relations. Why do we neglect or even in certain ways erase the memory of something that happened in L.A., which was the bloodiest race riot on the West Coast? This podcast debuts this week, and this is right on the heels of the incident in Atlanta where eight Asian women were killed. How can looking at the past and this historical event help inform how we look at what's going on right now? I mean, it relates in certain ways to personal histories. I myself grew up in a racist little town in New Jersey where the sheriff and mayor were publicly members of the KKK. So I have some inkling about what pervasive racism does. And I think one of the things that really is sad to me is how it has not stopped. In many ways, I think that it's COVID, but also there's been this kind of suspicion of Asians in America ever since the first Asians came here. And so we're trying, I think, to counter that by emphasizing humanity, because by denying the humanity of others, we destroy our own humanity and everybody winds up less than. If I may add just one more kind of detail that connects the time of the massacre to now, both in the early 1870s and now are times when there's a lot of economic and social insecurity in the United States and California. And also in both cases, we have had public figures most recently, former President Donald Trump, but um, back then, soon to be California Governor Leland Stanford, who have publicly made statements about the inferiority or the dangers posed by Chinese or Asian immigrants. And I think history kind of moves in these cycles sometimes. And it's very much by being conscious of the cycles as they've happened in the past that we can get a handle on what's happening now and what we are trying to do about it. And Micah, can you talk a little bit about the sound design for this and the music that was created? I um, have been interested in Chinese music and then there's also the piece, which is like this is set in a Wild West type environment, which is very much kind of my wheelhouse in terms of playing and, and designing. So what I really wanted to do was to get a sound that was combining Chinese and American slash Western um, sound aesthetics in a way that felt smooth and natural. And I think in, in certain ways, it's almost embodying a certain 
kind of the the vibe, if I may, of my Asian American experience as a young person in California and um, also in other places on the West Coast and in the West, just inhabiting this very, very stark, very, very quote-unquote American environment, but bringing a little bit of a, a Chinese sensibility to it. It's East meets West in, in a big way. That was Mika Huang and his father, Hao Huang, speaking with Beth Accomando about the seven-part podcast series, Blood on Gold Mountain. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio, or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.